All right, so we just read that text together with its words ringing in our ears, and I'm going to begin this message with the million-dollar question. Why does this passage matter to us? Right? Like Pastor Jason, I understood the words, but I have no idea what they mean. What do words like idolatry and cup and idols and sacrifices and demons and jealousy have to do with us today in America, Heartland, in 2023? Right? <clears throat> Perhaps some of you sat down after that scripture reading and thought, ah, good, Pastor Jason's going to ramble on for 45 minutes about something that doesn't pertain to me so I can take a nap. I can meditate, as Saul puts it, <laughs> with my eyes shut. <clears throat> I have to admit, the text we read sounds a little bit archaic, right? Like, for another time and another place. However, please don't close your eyes, because um, I'll just go on longer then. (laughs) Because I think this message is something we really need to hear, and I want you to understand what we need to hear from God's Word today. Um, I think you'll be surprised at how relevant this passage is, because the reality is, is that idolatry is all around us. Not in the form of wooden statues and golden temples, but in the form of entertainment and wealth and sex and self-image and self-definition and physical health and nationalism and beauty and athletic ability and success and military victory, and the list just goes on and on and on. So please don't tune out. God left this portion of text in his word for a reason, and that reason is still valid today, thousands of years, uh, just as valid today as it was thousands of years ago. American culture in 2023 is not so very different than Corinthian culture was back in AD 50. And so allow me the opportunity to demonstrate that to you, okay? So that leads to my second question for the morning. And I've searched the archives in my brain, uh, thought through countless sermons that I have heard over the many years that I have been a believer, and I'm not sure that I've ever heard this question asked from the pulpit before. My question comes from today's text. Here it is. Have you ever considered the fact that your actions could provoke the Lord Jesus Christ to jealousy? Another way of asking that question would be, would you want your actions to provoke the Lord Jesus to jealousy? It's an interesting question. I think there are pastors who are afraid to ask this question, and I understand why. It's a little bit fearful to ask it. But Paul wasn't afraid to ask it. And God left that question in his word, so it must be a legit question to ask, don't you think? Have you ever considered the fact that your actions could provoke the Lord Jesus Christ to jealousy? God tells us that he loves us unconditionally, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And when we believe in Jesus, God says that he is completely satisfied with us when we are in Christ Jesus. So we stand forgiven and pardoned and justified and cleansed before a holy God. God describes us as uh, Jesus' own spotless bride, adorned for the wedding. Think of the most beautiful bride you can imagine. Married guys, that should not to be too, too difficult for you to do. And this is what we look like to Jesus. We are his bride, and he is our bridegroom. And we are spotless, and we're beautiful, not because we are so good or whatever, but because Jesus is. And this is all true. And I want you to hold that picture of a beautiful bride standing before Jesus in your mind, and let me remind you of the question we're considering as we go through this passage today. Have you ever considered the fact that your actions could provoke the Lord Jesus to jealousy? So keep following me. Chapter 8, we're going to do a little bit of synopsis here. Chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, we learn that the Corinthian believers had come to a theologically accurate conclusion that an idol had no real existence and that there is no God but one, 
Right? This is true. And from that theological truth, the Corinthian believers then deduced that they could eat meat offered to idols and it would be okay. Eating meat offered to an idol would mean nothing because an idol is nothing. Right? And Paul affirmed their theological understanding. However, he encouraged them to be theologically humble in this respect. Because though their theological understanding and conclusion is correct, they were free in Christ to exercise their right to eat meat there is a deeper fundamental premise from which to make application of theology. And Paul concluded that theological application is not premised upon personal freedom and individual rights. Paul's point was that the application of theology is not premised upon freedom, it's premised upon love. And Paul has introduced to the believers in Corinth that there are three audiences to love when they make a decision whether to eat idol meat or not. In chapter 8, Paul challenged the believers to love the weaker brother in Christ. In chapter 9, Paul challenged them to love the lost. And in chapter 10, Paul challenges them to love the Lord their God. The most important of these is their love for God. And last week we saw that Paul began chapter 10 by pointing out that the God of our fathers is the God of the Old Testament, the same God as the Israelite God. And though he is gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, a God who saves and a God who, who provides, he is also a holy God, a God who deserves to be worshipped exclusively. He is a God who has rightfully said, since you are my chosen people and you are in a loving relationship with me and because I died for you so that I could make you my bride, whom I made spotless and white, please do not put other gods before me. You cannot worship me and something else at the same time. And God says this because of all that God has done for us. God deserves exclusive worship, and he is not demanding too much when he expects it. Think of the marriage metaphor. Why can God expect this? Because God loves every man, woman, and child who has ever lived enough to take on flesh and be born as a human so that he could die in the place of every last person in the history of the planet. And Jesus sealed the marriage covenant with us through his blood. He died so that we could be his bride. And that alone seems to be enough reason for him to demand and deserve exclusivity, don't you think? So stay with me. Remember that our passage mentions idolatry. And I want to remind of us of what God says in the Old Testament in the second of the Ten Commandments, right? He says in the Old Testament, Exodus, right, chapter 20, you shall make no, uh, not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, don't assume that this isn't for you just because you haven't gone out and carved an image or made a statue and bowed down to it. I'll bring us back to that in a few minutes. But did you hear that? God describes himself as a jealous God. Is it right for God to be jealous? Some people take issue with the idea that God is a jealous God because isn't jealousy a bad thing? The Bible teaches that for us as humans, yes, most of the time, jealousy is not a good thing because it stems from an ungrateful heart, right? A heart that wants what someone else has, a, a covetous heart, a heart that is, that, that is not content. But there is a time when jealousy is appropriate even for us as humans, like, for instance, in a loving marriage relationship. Why is jealousy appropriate in a marriage relationship? Because the two spouses 
stood there on their wedding day, all clean and sparkling, white and beautiful, and they made a promise to one another in the presence of God and friends and family that they would be faithful to their spouse until death. The covenant promise is binding. The recipient of that promise stakes the remainder of his or her life upon the other one keeping that promise. When the bride or groom promises to be faithful, they are saying that they are forsaking all others so that they can exclusively love the one that's in front of them, right? And so say a few weeks or months later, what if one of the spouses begins to flirt with another person, pursues another lover, goes over to another man or woman's house saying, this person seems more sexy and fun and they have better food and and the other spouse has every right to be jealous, don't you think? Just common sense. Jealousy is altogether appropriate in this sense because the offending spouse is breaking a covenant promise. The offending spouse lied. The offending spouse is not acting in love. The offending spouse is sinning against their spouse and against God, and all these sinful actions will have consequences that will be negative and painful and destructive to the offending individual, not to mention to his or her spouse. In this case, jealousy is an act of love because what is best for both individuals is that they keep their promises love one another, be faithful and true to God and to each other. And it's the same with God. In the person of Jesus, he made a covenant promise to us, and he sealed it with his blood. And he, all he asks of us is that we believe that he died for us and rose again, and then that we live in a covenant relationship with him. He has forgiven us and cleansed us and redeemed us and made us his beautiful bride, not because we are so great, but because he is so great. And all he asks is that we forsake all others and completely devote ourselves to him. This is simply a reasonable response, don't you think? And so here's the thing. How do you think Jesus is going to feel if someone receives his love and his forgiveness and his grace and his provision and his promises and says, thank you, but now I'm going to go over here and worship this other God because it seems more sexy and more fun. This other God is better food. Jesus has a right to be jealous. Don't, he died for you. It's only common sense. And this is why Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in verse 14 says, flee idolatry. Don't flirt with it. Don't get as close to it as you can. Don't, you don't want to provoke the Lord to jealousy, verse 22. Just do the logical, expected, honest, reasonable, loving thing. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. Run away from idolatry and run to him. Right? We saw that last week. And in verse 15, Paul's like, I speak as to sensible people. So Paul's like, judge for yourself whether what I say is legit or not. In other words, this is just a reasonable and logical way to relate to someone who loves you, the Lord Jesus. Not to mention the fact it's a loving way to relate to him. Why can Paul say this? Because jealousy is an expected and appropriate response to a breach in a loving covenant relationship, even for God. Now, when we read through chapter 8, a few weeks ago, we learned that the the stronger, more knowledgeable believers in Corinth were joining in social parties uh, held in temples, uh, dining halls, and and participating in sexual practices during those parties, indulging in the food offered to idols, going to the market, purchasing meat offered to idols, enjoying themselves, and then coming home and saying, hey, God is the only God, an idol is just a hunk of stone. And what we eat is of no spiritual consequence to God. Sleeping with someone is culturally acceptable. So in our freedom in Christ, 
We can do whatever we want. We can eat whatever is put before us in good conscience. I'm strong enough believer that I'm not going to fall back into idol worship. And even if I do, his grace keeps me going. In fact, I'm free and all my brothers and sisters in Christ in the church should enjoy this freedom that I enjoy. And Paul's response is, do you really want to provoke the Lord Jesus to jealousy? But how does Paul support his argument theologically? Right? This, is, this is important. We can say all that, but how does he support his argument theologically? And I'm going to do my best to explain that now as we get to the two-point outline that I have in your bulletins for today. So let's quickly take a look at Paul's theological argument before we get to the application and how this is relevant for us today, even though I think you're beginning to get the idea. The point of what Paul is saying is that our actions reveal one of two things. Either we have koinonia with Christ or we have koinonia with demons. So which will it be? Let's look at verse 16. Oh, let's start in 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. All right. Something important to note here is that the word translated as fellowship or participation or participants in this passage is the Greek word koinonia. I don't know if you've heard that before, but the Greek word koinonia means participation, fellowship, communion, oneness. Okay? The cup of blessing. This is not some strange mystical experience that Paul's talking about. Paul is not saying that we actually drink the blood of Jesus when we participate in communion together. This is another instance where God, through the pen of Paul, connects the dots with what we do, with what we believe. What we do, which stems from what we believe when we are together, either adds or detracts from the community unity that we enjoy. So when we drink the cup together, we are doing what Jesus asked us to do as we remember him. And as we do that action, we are encouraging our fellowship with Christ. And we encourage our fellowship, as we encourage our fellowship with Christ, we are thus encouraging and enhancing our fellowship with one another. The cup that we share is a cup of blessing. All right? It's a cup of blessing. It's the cup of the new covenant. It is a cup symbolizing the blood that Jesus shed for us. And as we drink the cup, we participate in and give credence to and remember the bloody sacrifice Jesus made for us so that we could be his bride. The word participate is the word koinonia, which is translated as fellowship or oneness. In this context, as in all the New Testament, the word fellowship carries that idea of unity, right? like in a marriage relationship. A husband and wife share koinonia, oneness. We, the body of Christ, experience fellowship or oneness through the blood of Christ. We remember this as we partake the cup of blessing, which typically is on the first week of the month. The bread that we break, Paul says, the bread that we break and eat together is the Lord's Supper. The act of eating bread together is a participation in the body of Jesus. Again, the word participation is koinonia, meaning fellowship. The bread that we break together is fellowshipping in the body of Jesus. It is a fellowship with one another and thus with the body of Christ, for that is what we are called. Remember, we're the body of Christ. 
The act of eating bread together in remembrance of Jesus is an act of fellowship which produces unity and oneness as we focus on our Savior and God. So one bread, one body. And you see what Paul says in verse 17? The one bread that we break is symbolic of the one body that each of us is a part of. And the key word in that is partake. So Paul is talking about how the act of partaking, the act of eating, and the act of drinking, the participation and the fellowship together is a physical act that mysteriously ties us to the physical act of Jesus' death and resurrection. The things that we do have significance. The material world is not unimportant. Our actions are consequential. Our actions either promote or detract from fellowship and unity. We together participate fellowship together in the body and blood of Jesus as we physically eat and drink wine together. The act of doing this together is koinonia. All right? It's a beautiful picture. Keep following me here. Our second point, koinonia with demons. Verse 18, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I apply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants, koinonia, with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, you say, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So Paul begins by saying that we are to consider the people of Israel. Again, the people of Israel are our forefathers in the faith. What they did and didn't do is written down for us as examples of what we should and shouldn't do. Right? Paul says that those who eat the sacrifices are koinonia, fellowship, one with the altar. Right? Verse 18, when the Israelites went to the temple back in ancient times and offered sacrifices to God, they would also eat some of the meat that they offered to God. This was participation in the worshiping of God. That was all part of the whole sacrificial system. The act of eating was part of the worship. They were fellowshipping with God and with one another in the eating of the animal that had been sacrificed, part of the worship. Now Paul knows human logic and he anticipates the Corinthians' rebuttal. They would say something like, are you implying that an idol is something then? Because Paul, you just said that an idol is nothing. So how can you say it's something and now you're saying, or it's nothing and now you're saying it's something? So are you implying that meat offered to idols is anything or that's tainted? To which Paul says, what do I imply, right? He, he, he foresees their question. He says, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Paul's like, I know what you're thinking. And the answer is no. I don't imply that the idol itself is anything or that the meat offered to that idol is of any significance. However, what I do imply is this, Paul says, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Even though there is nothing significant with the physical wooden idol in and of itself, the person who is offering meat to that idol is offering meat to something they consider is significant. They offer meat to demons and not to God. So Corinthians, with that implication stated, I do not want you to koinonia, to fellowship, to be one with demons. Verse 20. So the act of eating and drinking in remembrance of someone, Jesus, demon, whatever, 
Eating and drinking in remembrance of someone is an act of fellowshipping together with that person and with everyone else that's participating with you. So eating and drinking in remembrance or in homage to the demonic spirit behind the idol is fellowshipping together with that demon and with everyone else who's participating with you. How could Paul make the leap from an idol is nothing to the people worshiping demons? I want you to listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's from the Song of Moses. Interesting Song of Moses as they come out of or is there, he's, in, he's in the pro, uh, just about to go in the promised land. Now listen to what Moses says. He's talking to Israel about Israel, the bride of God. God looked at Israel as his bride, and God says this to his bride. After, he'd been, after they'd been in this relationship, he says, you grew fat and stout and sleek. Now that's not, you know, most of us don't want to hear that, right? But he says, you grew fat and stout and sleek, and then they forsook God who made them. And they scoffed at the rock of their salvation, and they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. This is where Paul gets this idea, right? So God was jealous that Israel forsook him and went after other things. The idols were fronts for demons. And what this means is that though a physical idol is nothing, there is something behind the idol. There is something that the idol signifies. And Paul's application is, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and in the table of demons. In other words, you cannot worship Jesus and something else. You can't have another God you love alongside the true God. God wants us to love him exclusively because we are in a covenant marriage relationship with him. He desires for us to be loyal to him because he is loyal to us. And I've said it before, but the Bible teaches that you cannot worship Jesus and tack something else on just in case. It's inconsistent. It's incongruous. It's unreasonable because it's infidelity. It's betrayal. It's unfaithfulness. It's like walking away from the relationship with Jesus and building a relationship with a demon and saying, Jesus, you aren't good enough. The demon is more fun to be around, it's sexier, it's more attractive, it satisfies me more than you, it's, it's meat tastes better than yours, it's bread is more savory than yours, it's more satisfying. It's like if a spouse begins flirting with another person, pursuing another lover, or going over to another man or woman's house saying that person's more sexy, more fun, whatever, the other spouse has every right to be jealous. It's common sense. But we are the bride of Jesus. We enjoy koinonia, fellowship, oneness with him. It is inconsistent and a betrayal to share that fellowship, that oneness with something or someone else. And I know that sounds a bit harsh and unfiltered, but this is what Paul is getting at in this passage. And so his point is this, verse 22. Do you really want to provoke the Lord Jesus to jealousy? Do we really want to do that to the one who died for us? To the one who has given us everything we have. Because, kind of, you know, I can hear Paul saying, <clears throat> it is, in fact, because of Jesus that we even have the liberty and the right to eat meat in the first place, Corinthians, right? And Paul's point to the Corinthians is this, how about get your meat from somewhere else? From some place where there is no idol worship involved, where there's no chance of fellowshipping with a demon or with people who worship demons, so that it doesn't look like you're cheating on Jesus. So now that I've worked through the passage, I want to re revisit the million-dollar question, right? Why does this passage matter to us? I mean, as I said before, idolatry, really? We don't deal with that today, do we? We don't purchase figurines, bow down to them, or go to pagan temples and 
have feasts in honor of demons. We don't buy meat in the marketplace that's been offered to a demon. At least I don't think we do. And so how is this passage relevant for us today? I mean, we're a, we're a sophisticated society, less prone to superstition and spiritual fantasy, aren't we? Science has proven that matter is all that there is. And it has given us the answers for things that humans used to ascribe to demons and spirits. And those of us in the church, we trust in Jesus. We don't have pagan temples to go to. So why are we spending so much time on this passage? There's sarcasm in my voice. Please don't take that out and just put it somewhere else. All right? Sarcasm. Why does God keep this long of a passage about idolatry and idol meat in his word when we don't need it today? Or do we? Scripture would argue that idolatry is something that every person in every epoch of time and every corner of the planet is tempted with. Because idolatry is not just bowing down to a hunk of stone or wood. Idolatry is taking someone or something and raising its level of importance to the level of God. When reverence and honor and affection and attention, which should be given to God, is given to something else. And idols can take all kinds of forms. <clears throat> In Corinth, there were wooden and stone statues that physically depicted the true idol that people were really worshiping. Okay? For instance, there was a path, uh, sorry, Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual love and beauty. There was Asclepios, the male god of healing and medicine. Apollo, the male god of sun and archery, music, poetry, power. I don't know how to pronounce this one. I think it's Demeter, the goddess of the harvest. There was Kor, the goddess of spring, planting, nature. Athena, the goddess of battle strategy and wisdom. Nike, love that one, the goddess of victory. The pantheon of God and goddesses went on and on. But, but here's the thing. Though they bowed down to wooden idols, they were really worshiping the something behind the idol. The demon behind the idol. The stone or wood simply personified what they were really worshiping. In worshiping Aphrodite, they were really elevating sex and beauty to the point of God's status in their lives. People still worship the same thing today. Among many, sex has been elevated to godlike status where time and money and relationships and even children, almost anything and everything is sacrificed upon the altar of sexual pleasure. In worshiping Asclepios, the Corinthians were really worshiping medicine and the physical health. Subtle idol in our society today, too. The worship of modern medicine viewed as the savior of mankind, the cure for every disease, the hope for all. Billions and billions of dollars are spent on healthcare prevention and treatment and the altar of physical health. Worshiping Apollo, the Corinthians were worshiping power and art and music and entertainment. Again, this is an idol in our society. The worship of entertainment, music, and power that accompanies all of it. Billions of dollars are spent on entertainment, movies, videos. It's right there to fingertips, right? Every day, ready to make the consumer you happy. In the worship of Demeter and Kor, the Corinthians are worshiping nature, obsessing over springtime and harvest, caring for nature and worshiping nature above all else. In modern times, this would be akin to environmentalism and naturalism. Taking care of what God has given to mankind is a good thing. It's important. That's what God created us to do is take care of it. But when the thing to be taken care of becomes an obsession and the object of our affection and worship, then it's become an idol. In worshiping Athena, the Corinthians were worshiping war and battle and bloodshed and armies and weapons. In modern day, this would correspond to armies, weapons, tactics as the hope and confidence for a people or for a nation. 
In worshiping Nike, the Corinthians worshiped victory. They made sacrifices to the idol to assure military, athletic, personal, and economic victory in their lives. In our modern days, so much is sacrificed and given for the sake of athletic victory, military victory, economic victory. Obviously, idolatry looks a little different today, but it is still a temptation for all of us. And I hope that we will just listen to Paul's warning, right? That we will think critically about the places that we go, the things that we watch, the things that we do, what we eat and drink, and where we eat and drink, because all thing, though all things are lawful, legality is not the premise by which we as Christians operate. The premise by which we operate is what builds up. The premise upon which we operate is love. So I humbly am going to ask some tough questions. Or a question. Have any of the idols or ideologies that I listed above worked their way into the top of your priority list? To the point where a thing has consumed enormous amounts of time, energy, finances, attention, affection, and faith in your life to the neglect of Jesus. Would he be jealous? Are you sharing your love for Jesus with something else? It could be sex, which includes porn and videos and self-gratification. Does this consume your thoughts, your time, your attention? Do you turn to sex in times of stress and times of pain, do you, or, or do you turn to Jesus? Are you tempted to define yourself by your sexual preference? Or is your identity found in Jesus? It could be physical health. It's important to take care of your body, protect it, groom it, nourish it, obviously. But does your physical health consume more of your time and your attention, your thoughts, your money than it should? Do you trust in medicine, uh, medical treatments alone to ensure life, long life and, and health? Or do you trust that Jesus is ultimately your source of life and health and peace and joy? Does he factor into your health care decisions? Could be entertainment. Are you preoccupied with staying busy, doing fun things every moment you have, staying current on the trends and new releases? Doing fun things and enjoying entertainment is not wrong. God wants us to enjoy the good things that he's provided. It's a wonderful thing he's given to us. But do you look to modern forms of entertainment with the faith and expectation that only it can provide pleasure, escape, relaxation? Do you find, or do you find rest in Jesus, right? Do you take pleasure in time spent with him? Do you enjoy worshiping him? Is he someone you enjoy spending time with? Could be nature. Have you placed your faith in modern science as the answer for all the natural disasters, or do you trust that Jesus holds this world in his hand? Could be war. Are you trusting in a strong military, a good self-defense system, or good tactics for saving you, your family, your community? From your enemies. Could be victory. Is your, pla- is your faith placed in a strong, united, ethical government to ensure political, national, economic victory? Or is your hope for an easy future placed in your investments, retirement savings? Or do you truly believe that you have victory in Jesus? We sing it. As our Savior and our Bridegroom, the one who loves us more than life itself, Jesus wants our exclusive love and attention because we have his exclusive love and attention. We are the apple of his eye. He's loyal to us, to death. Shouldn't we be loyal to him? Because as his bride, we have been defined by Jesus. We have been healed by Jesus. 
We have eternal joy in Jesus. We have hope of a new heaven, new earth because of Jesus. We have salvation and protection in Jesus. We have victory in Jesus. We have everything for life and godliness in Jesus. We are an everlasting covenant marriage relationship, unconditionally loved by Jesus. Why in the world would any of us want Jesus to be jealous when he is all that we need? We are one with him, and nothing can separate us from that love. Nothing holds a candle to him and his love. And all those other things are disappointments anyway. They fail us, they ruin us, they kill us. When it is Jesus who gave us life, and it's abundant life, it's joyful life. In conclusion, I I just want to read this letter that Jesus himself dictated for the Apostle John to write down and be sent to the church in Thyatira. I wasn't necessarily going to read this letter because it seems a little strange, but God had it in my notes and I think it should stay there. (laughs) He thinks it should stay there, so I'm going to read it. Jesus sent this letter to his bride. I want you to understand it. Jesus sent this letter to his bride, to the church that he loved and is one with. And these are words of Jesus, our gracious Savior, the one who laid down his life for us so that we could be forgiven and free and cleansed and in fellowship with him and the Father. So this is from Jesus, our bridegroom, the one who made us a promise and sealed it with his blood. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He's beautiful, he's gorgeous, he's an incredible bridegroom. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. God sees what we do. Jesus sees what we do, and he loves us, right? But listen to what he says to this church. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, this is just kind of a a general term, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food offered to idols. Wow. Same thing the Corinthians were dealing with in Thyatira. And Jesus is writing his church, his bride, saying, there's this woman who's tempting you guys to sexual immorality and eating food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." That sounds a little bit like a jealous husband to me. But then he says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to these teachings, right? So there's a bunch that didn't. Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Remember deep demon worship, right? I say this to you. I do not lay any other burden on you. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast to the love of your life until he comes. That's your bridegroom. That's Jesus, right? The one who loves you unconditionally. Don't settle for second best. Idols don't love you. Stay loyal to the one who loves you and gave it all for you. Love him because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pause for a moment for silent reflection, your, your word is <laughs> powerful. And I just want to take a moment and 
Just think about what your spirit is telling us. I come to you this morning, Father, and we bow our hearts before you from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. We ask that according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Jesus Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And that we, being rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Jesus Christ that surpasses knowledge. Jesus' love for us exceeds our understanding. His love is a love that chose us, a love that died for us, a love that will never fail, a love that is loyal and true, a love that is eternal. So we simply ask that your Spirit would enable us to return that love to Jesus. Help us to loyally love Him who first loved us because really, what's not to love? Jesus is altogether worthy of all the love that we could give Him. He's so great and so awesome. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you did for us. We are so grateful. So thank you, and God, I pray that you would help us this week to just live in that lavish love and to return that love to the Savior of our souls. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.